All right, in chapter number 13 of our study of the Confession of Faith, chapter 13, uh, last week we began looking at this uh, particular chapter with a, an overview of sanctification defined, and this morning we're going to deal with sanctification described, specifically dealing with the thought, walk in newness of life, walk in newness of life. Uh, if you would also take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Romans 6, and we'll read just a few verses from Romans 6 that deals with this topic or this subject of walking in the newness of life. Of course, the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, deals with uh, a number of different doctrinal important issues. Uh, not only the doctrines of salvation, but also the doctrines of sanctification. And of course, as Paul wrote in Romans 6, he's writing to those who have received this new life, and he is reminding them to walk in that newness that they have received. There in Romans 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now, of course, chapter 13 in the Confession deals with the doctrine of sanctification. Chapter 6 in our Confession, which has been a while ago now, uh, described people as being born in sin. So to be born in sin means that their hearts, their minds, even their will, and even the physical body has become corrupted. And because of that corruption, that corruption makes them slaves of sin. And by nature, can somebody let Mark in please? Um, and by nature, a hatred of God. Uh, sin uh, makes us hate God, makes us despise God. Chapter 11, dealing with justification, we learn that that changes our legal standing. So remember, justification changes our legal standing as believers before God. We are, in effect, counted righteous based on the work of Christ, not on our own work. That's justification. 
So the question we ask with sanctification is we defined this last week and now we get a little bit deeper into details. What does, what happens to that sin nature? What happens to that corruption that affected our hearts, our minds, our wills, and our bodies? What happened to it? Justification, again, deals with a sinner's legal standing. So we've got to keep that in mind. Justification deals with a sinner's legal standing before God. So what does sanctification do? Sanctification deals with the sinful nature of the person who has been saved. Sanctification does not precede justification. So we, that may be an obvious thing for those, those of us here today, but you're not sanctified before you're justified. Sanctification is now the result of what's already taken place. So the word sanctification in its truest sense means to be set apart to God. Uh, not just set apart for God, but rather set apart to God. So when it's used, it is used sometimes in Scripture to refer to an inanimate object. So to, be, to have something set apart to God is also used towards inanimate objects. For example, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 23, 17, there is a reference to an inanimate object being sanctified. And here's what it says. Matthew 23, 17 says, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. Uh, that was, of course, a question that Jesus was asking to the scribes and the Pharisees. So the word sanctification can refer to an object being set apart for holy use. But it means exactly what it sounds like. To be set apart for God's holy use. Sanctification is not uh, a, a setting aside or setting apart without a purpose. It's set apart for holy use. So when we are sanctified and being sanctified, we are being set apart for God's holy use. In order to be used by God in a holy way, that implies that there has to be a change that takes place morally, uh, has to take place even with regard to how we view sin. Paul dealt with this, this concept of a moral change regarding sanctification in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 3. If you want to turn there, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 3. We'll read a couple verses before that. Uh, Paul is writing in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians about the believer's call to holiness, uh, that this is something they are called to. He says, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. So sanctification is with the purpose of our holiness. Again, it's not just an idea or a concept. It implies an actual change, a moral change. So sanctification is best described and defined as being set apart for God by becoming holy in our persons. 
Okay? So we read paragraph 1 last week, but again, you see that it refers, they who are united to Christ, affectionately called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified, really and personally. We dealt with that statement last week. When Paul is writing there in Romans 6, which we read at the beginning of our time, he's not writing about a hypothetical situation. He's writing about something that actually took place in reality, and it took place personally. In other words, it couldn't just be said that we're just generally sanctified. He said it is personal sanctification, personal holiness. And so when Paul's writing there in Romans 6, he's not writing to unbelievers. Now, one of the most amazing things about Romans 6 is when you get to the end of Romans 6, one of the most quoted verses in all of Romans is Romans 6.23 that says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't it interesting that contextually Paul was talking about sanctification when he mentioned that verse? He wasn't talking about evangelism there. He's reminding them that what happened through that change is that sin, remember, sin, its wages was originally death for you. That verse, Romans 6.23, becomes more precious to the believer, maybe even more so than an evangelistic tool, because we realize what our wages for our sin should have been. So it is a real and personal through the same virtue, which is Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. These are real changes that the confession's talking about taking place, and what Paul is writing about in Romans 6. Notice there's emphasis on more and more weakened and mortified with regard to sin, and more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness. You can see this. Our, our propensity for sin and our propensity for the things that, that are a, a violation against the holy God are to be becoming more and more less frequent, and the things that are calling us to holiness are to become more and more frequent. It's, you can kind of see it in a scale. Sin is going down, and saving graces are going up. That's what sanctification's results are. That's how you describe it. And notice it is to the practice of all true holiness. And here's, what the, here's how paragraph one ends. Without which no man shall see the Lord. Now that's a pretty stinging accusation the confession makes because if there is not this weakening and mortifying of the flesh and the lusts and an quickening and a strengthening of saving graces, that man is not going to see the Lord. That means you cannot... You cannot claim, I'm saved, but I'm not being sanctified. I'm saved, but I'm, I'm not interested in sanctification. It, it's the danger of evangelism that stops at evangelism and doesn't go one step further and say, listen, this is not just a one-time get-out-of-hell-free card. There's a process that now is going to take place. You're going to be coming more and more like Christ. Sometimes, and again, I think you understand what I mean by this, we overemphasize the evangelism and don't consider that in true evangelistic endeavors, there's going to be a moral change and a change in the person who truly is converted. Without a change, there was no regeneration. Yet we have millions of people probably. I don't think that's a stretch across this world who someday, some point made a confession and a profession of faith, but there was never a change. 
And they're walking around with some sense of, I'm perfectly safe. Paul writes in Romans 6 and puts, I mean, if we're just taking the confession as our solid authority, which we're not because it's not an inspired book, but the word of God is. And Paul is saying this process of sanctification must be taking place in a person who truly has been converted. So we're talking about a real change. So when does sanctification begin? It starts with the new birth. When we are born again, sanctification starts. Back in chapter 10 of the confession, we studied effectual calling. And that chapter showed us that when God calls someone and converts them, a new heart has to be given to them. In that regenerating process, they have to receive a new heart in order to respond to the gospel and be justified. That new heart is what takes away our spiritual blindness. It's easy for us to sit and say today that I would have seen the things of God apart from the spiritual blindness being removed. Scripturally speaking, no, you never would have seen the truths of your own sin had God not revealed it to you. That required a new heart. That required a taking away of not only your blindness. Now, this is an offensive statement to many, but he also had to take away your hatred of God. Some of us will say today, I never hated God then you never really understood the depravity and the depth of your sin. It's, 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 like, it's like we can look at someone and we can call the atheist and say, that person really hates God. But do you realize apart from God removing the spiritual blindness from your eyes and showing it to you, you hated God just as much. See, our pride tells us, not me. I'm not as bad as the atheist who shakes his fist at a God he doesn't believe in or denies the reality of God, without the converting power of God, we're all haters of God. That's what makes the doctrines of grace so glorious is because we, we couldn't remove the obstacle between us and the God's righteousness. Yet Jesus Christ does. So here we have this liberation that we've received. We've received a liberation from the slavery to sin. That's what Paul was talking about. When you're being sanctified, sin is no longer your master. You've been liberated. You are now set free to love and obey God. And I would say this, in the truly converted soul, you don't, you're not forced to love and obey. You delight to love the Lord and you delight in obedience. If obeying God is drudgery to you, you have to ask yourself the question, have I truly ever been converted? Why would it be drudgery to obey God? Why would it be, why would it be drudgery to do the things of God? Why would we not want to be set apart for the holy use of God for His purposes if we're truly now a lover of God? That's what Paul has in mind here even in Romans 6. So what happens? We know it starts with the new birth. We also know, secondly, that this new birth starts the process of what we talked a little bit about last week, about practical sanctification. There is a decisive break with the old life of sin. In Romans 6, 6, Paul said this, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. This is not a prophetic statement about when we get to glory. This is about practical sanctification that's happening now. Sin and its dominion over you is destroyed through sanctification. 
Now again, the question is always going to come up, does that mean sinless perfection? And we know absolutely not. But Paul does use the terminology, the old man is crucified. He also makes a reference similar to that in Galatians 5.24. But what it truly means is that you are set free from sin. Uh, if you look back at Romans 6, we didn't read these verses, but look, drop down to verses 21 and 22 of Romans 6. Paul says, What fruit had ye in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? He's asking a a very basic question. What what fruit did you have in the old life of sin? What goodness did you have to show? For the end of those things is death. He said everything that you had in your slavery to sin led to one thing and one thing only. What's the scriptures tell us? It led to death. Okay, that's very clear. And I love this expression, but now. But now, being made free from sin, he's talking present tense, not sometime in the future, and become servants to God, not hypothetical, you are now a servant to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness. Now the works in which you do in the new man, in this newness of life, are fruits unto holiness, contrasted with what they used to be, which were fruits unto death. It's a beautiful picture. And the end, everlasting life. And then he uses, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about how many times in evangelistic endeavor we use, we pull Romans 6.23 from the quiver, and we fire that arrow, and don't even stop to think about the context in which Paul made that statement. He said that in the context of sanctification of the believer. Can I use that verse to share the gospel with someone? I can. But do you realize apart from God removing the spiritual blindness from their eyes, the wages of sin is death does not even make logical sense. It doesn't even, it doesn't compute. Because that's what, we don't see it. We don't see that sin leads to death until we've been saved and the sanctification process has now begun in us. So now we become an actual new creation. When Paul used this terminology, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul uses this terminology about being a new creature or a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Notice it doesn't say he will become, he is becoming, but he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. Paul, in the writing to the Corinthians, doesn't leave any room for debate with this. If you are truly in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things he's referring to is the old fruits of your sin. Those things are passed away. You're no longer the servant of sin. You are now the servant of God. So what's Paul saying? Those who were once slaves of sin are now slaves of righteousness. Takes us back to Romans 6 again. Look where Paul actually makes reference to the slave of righteousness. He uses the word servant or slave, depending on which translation you might be looking at this morning. Romans 6, 18. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servant 
of righteousness. You see the new life. You were a servant of sin. Now you're a servant of righteousness. Fruit unto holiness, verse 22. Free from sin. So, thirdly, we see sanctification starts with a new birth. Secondly, we see that it's the process of practical sanctification. Thirdly, this new birth results in us becoming more and more holy in our thoughts, words, and conduct. Now, that's not a legalistic statement that I just made to you. It is a scriptural proof and a scriptural commandment that those that are in Christ... Their thoughts, words, and conduct, if they are truly being sanctified, will become more holy. If you are going the opposite direction, if you are getting less and less holy and your conduct and your words and your thoughts and your deeds are getting worse, there is something viciously wrong with your faith. That's not my words, that's the word of God. It is impossible for you who are a new creature to not be getting, and I don't want to use the word better, but getting more holy. Okay, Conduct is going to change. Now why does this happen or how does this happen? It's not because of our own power. It's We are being empowered by the Holy Spirit for godly living. Paul says in Romans 8.13, he says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This is an empowerment that is given by the Spirit. This is not your self-pep talk every morning. Okay, I will be more holy, I will be more holy. You can do it, you can do it. This is the Holy Spirit empowerment. A lot of people's Christianity is boiled down to that. Standing in the mirror or even in their mind's eye saying, I'm going to do better today. Now it might be, it may be a good pattern for you, but that's not why you're getting better is because you empowered yourself this morning. If you're getting better, you're getting better because the Spirit has claimed that if you're one of God's, He is going to empower you to get better. You are going to become more holy in your words, thoughts, and conduct. It's not a matter of if. It's happening. It has to happen. So the Word of God, and especially the promises of God, is what helps us overcome sin. What's, why, how do we start overcoming sin in our life through sanctification? Because our thinking is now being renewed. We don't think about sin the same way we used to. Sin, which, which usually used to just, we could gloss over it, didn't bother us. Now it begins to affect us because our mind has been renewed. I, I'm not supposed to think the same way that I thought before I was a believer. I should have, I should have even more uh, thoughts towards sin and its abomination towards sin now than I've ever had before. No matter what stage in my Christian life I'm at, I should not be able to view sin the same way I could view it before my conversion. Again, that's, there's, a whole, there's a whole level of biblical lessons. We could go just with that thought. 
So we overcome sin by the empowerment of the Spirit, which is part of the sanctification process. It renews our thinking, which results in godly conduct. Paul also wrote, wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7. Again, he doesn't use the word sanctification. He uses the word holiness. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, here we know Paul was writing to believers. He was not writing to the unbelieving population at, at, at large. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. A couple, couple interesting phrases. He uses, he calls them dearly beloved. He also uses the phrase, let us cleanse ourselves. So now we're beginning to see that this process of sanctification, although it is God who is, quote unquote, doing the sanctifying process, we are also involved in this. You are going to have to take steps to cleanse yourself from filthiness. In other words, you don't continue to put filthiness in front of you and say, okay, well, God will clean that up. If you know something is sinful, you need to cleanse yourself from that. You know, it's an amazing thing how, how far wrong some Christian thinking has gone. Where people say, if God doesn't want me to do this, he won't let it happen. That's an abuse of God's sovereignty, folks. It's an abuse of God's sovereignty to just say, you know what, I'm going to go do this thing, and if God doesn't stop me, he must be okay with it. That's really, really bad theology. God is not going to stop you from your filthy habits. He's not going to stop me from my filthiness. He's not going to prevent me from watching, doing, or saying like we're some kind of a robot. That's not what sovereignty is. And sanctification, these things are getting better because we're being empowered by the Spirit. So there is this renewed thinking which leads to godly conduct. So, sanctification begins with an event. What's the event? The new birth. It's the new birth that breaks the power of sin. Think about it this way. It's the new birth that breaks the chain of sin that you were chained to. Okay? Does that make sense? It, 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 it breaks that chain. It's like being, it's like being bound to a, to a stake or to a cage. Regeneration breaks that chain and starts the process of more holiness and becoming more and more like Christ. So sanctification is truly practical. Now you'll notice that that first, that first paragraph of the confession ends with a reference to Hebrews 12.14. So if you want to turn over there, let's look at this together. Hebrews 12.14. And this is the, the chapter in which we're reminded about Jesus being the author and finisher of our faith in verse number 2. The chastening hand of God, which is found in uh, verses 7 through 13. And then there's this warning in verse 14 of Hebrews 12. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, that almost is word for word the very last phrase of paragraph 1 of chapter 13 of sanctification. So what is the implications? In order to even follow peace with all men, 
There has to be the reality of this holiness or this sanctification. It is impossible for us to live at peace with all men, and it is impossible for us to see the Lord without holiness, without sanctification. It's a warning to professing believers here, folks. This is not a warning to the unbeliever. Remember, context always matters. The very first, the very first verse of chapter 12 of Hebrews, Paul, Paul or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, says, let us lay aside every weight. The writer is telling us it is an us he's talking to. He's not talking to the whole world in general. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which thus so easily beset us and let us run the race with patience. The race that is set before us. He's talking about people that are running the race of sanctification. Not people that are running to be justified. Not people that are running to be regenerated. The chastening hand of God is upon the believer not the unbelieving world. This is a warning that no matter what you profess to be, no matter what you say you are, if there's no holiness in your life, put it right where it is. You're not saved. You're not converted. If your life is a life filled with unholy conduct, from, I mean, and that's the dominant feature of your life, do not fool yourself into believing that you're one of God's children. It just can't be. That's God's word. You say, well, that doesn't seem like kind of, that's not friendly talk. We don't want our church to be one of those churches that proclaims the truth. Yes, we do. That expects when people are saved that they're actually being sanctified and their conduct's getting better. Yeah, Bible actually says that's supposed to happen. So you've got this, this picture here of a person, sanctification is in effect, and listen carefully, a person's sanctification is more easily seen outwardly than a person's justification. Does everybody understand what I mean by that? You can see sanctification more easily than you can see justification. Anybody in this world can say, I'm justified. What are they declaring? By the true definition of justification, my legal standing before God, I'm acceptable. The problem is people will use all sorts of means and ways to say they're justified. But when a person says they're sanctified, they're calling attention to their outwardness. They're calling attention that their life is going to be different in words, thoughts, and deeds. That's not legalism, that's sanctification. It's easier to see. The only way a person can know for sure if they are truly justified, okay, we know the first evidence is the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the second evidence, and the only way you can truly know the evidence of the Holy Spirit is the visible evidence of your salvation that's found through your sanctification. Sanctification is visibly evident. A lot of people like to use this and they like to say, well, my sanctification is private and personal. 
And I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it's impossible for your sanctification, if it's truly sanctified by God, to be private and personal. There may be aspects of it that's personal, but your sanctification is going to be seen in the way you conduct yourself, the way I conduct myself. Holiness is a break from the power of sin and the evidences of what sin leaves. Do you know sin leaves evidence behind it? When we sin, there's always a trail. Now, no matter what you do, no matter what I do to cover it up, your sin always leaves evidence. It's always there. Kind of, kind of makes you think, doesn't it? Now, where that evidence shows up, we don't always know. But remember what was written by John in 1 John 2. And this is uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is, this is pretty alarming when we read about it and we think about it. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. And hereby we do know that we know Him. There's no two ways around this. If we keep His commandments. Again, there are churches out there that are screaming legalism. If you tell me how to act, you're a legalist. I'm not telling you how to do anything. I'm not telling you what to wear. I'm not telling you how to talk. I'm not telling you what's acceptable before God. I'm just giving you scripture. And what does that verse say again? Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments. These aren't my words. God's word is a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word... In him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also to also so to walk, even as he walked. So there's evidence of sin, and there's evidence of our sanctification. Now, quickly, just to introduce this for next week. Paragraph 2 deals specifically with the remaining struggle with sin. The whole paragraph is based upon our remaining struggle. And here's what it says. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imper- imper- imperfect in this life. Okay, I want, you to, I want you to meditate on that for a minute. Sanctification is throughout the entirety of man from head to toe. But the sanctification in this life is imperfect. What does that teach us? That we will never reach a place in this life where sin is not a problem. Okay, so Paul is not pressing towards sinless perfection or is the confession pressing towards sinless perfection. But rather, it says this, there abide still some remnants of corruption in every part. The the word picture and the word illustration here is quite remarkable. In every part of you from head to toe, there's a remnant of corruption. Some of us would say, I tell you right now, there's more than a remnant. It's still there. So the man or the woman that walks around with their chest out and says, I have been perfectly sanctified in this life is a liar. They have not been perfectly sanctified, nor will they ever be perfectly sanctified in this life because there will always be remaining corruption. However, notice again, whence arises 
a continual, and I like the word the confession uses, irreconcilable war. Which means it will never get to the place in this life where you're going to be able to look at the enemy of sin and say, I no longer have a struggle with you. And if you've gotten there, you're in dangerous ground. Because I can tell you with 100% certainty, without arrogance and pride, you didn't get there. You have a remnant of corruption there. It's still there. And notice they use the word war. This is why we don't kind of tiptoe around sin. And we're going to talk about this in our study of Ephesians today about the whole armor of God. The visual word pictures here are amazing today because we treat sin and this process as if it's just some kind of a friendly battle that we're doing, negotiating, talking at the table, trying to give, conceding one way or the other. Hey, if you do this, I won't do this. Folks, this is an absolute battle. This is an absolute war that you're actually in. So that when sin gets a hold of even a professing believer, we shouldn't be alarmed. They are in a war. That's why Paul uses such such visual imagery so to get us out of this watered-down, sugar-coated new Christianity we have that makes everything like a cartoon. I've always wondered how you can use Sunday school curriculum for kids and turn it into like a cartoon. You're, you're taking away what, what the, the real thing that they're going to face, which is real war. And it's worse war than any physical war this planet will ever experience. You really should think about that. As bad as physical war is on this planet, the war against sin is worse. Far worse. He describes what that war looks like. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So next week, we'll talk a little bit more about paragraph two, which will naturally lead us into paragraph three, which will talk about progress in grace. So this morning, we walk in the newness of life based upon the empowerment of the spirit, which is the evidence that we are indeed the children of God. All right? So we'll stop there for this morning.